This is At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition Saturday. I'm Scott Simon. So glad you could join us. This week, people in Wyoming prepare to welcome a new administration. A funny liberal and a funny conservative go hand-to-hand over who'll have the better jokes over the next four years. The dean of presidential speechwriters talks about great and not-so-great inaugural addresses in history. The inaugural poet speaks out. Plus, Will I Am and Russell Simmons bring hip-hop into politics. But first... The name of Captain Chesley Sullenberger has been mentioned quite a bit over the past few days. He's the pilot who, with nerve and grace, steered a huge U.S. Airways Airbus onto the icy surface of the Hudson River, seemingly as easily as a man tossing a pillow onto a bed. But he had help saving those 155 lives. The first officer on the flight was Jeffrey Skiles. The three flight attendants who helped lead people out of the plane, onto the wings, and into rafts and rescue crafts, and made sure that the passengers were safe and accounted for were Donna Dent, Doreen Walsh, and Sheila Dale. So the next time you might get exasperated over some air travel problem and be inclined to say something sharp to a flight attendant, you might want to remember their first and last responsibility is safety. And as we saw this week, they will risk their lives to save yours. Now, isn't that worth a lot more than a small bag of peanuts? In Wyoming, many people seem to anticipate Inauguration Day with a mix of curiosity and suspicion. Only 33% of the voters in that state voted for Barack Obama. No state voted less Democratic. But many people in Wyoming say they will still give the new president the respect any president of the United States deserves. Wyoming Public Radio's Addie Goss reports. Gentlemen, can I help you? Just days before the inauguration, the cash register is ringing at this gun shop in Laramie. Owner Dieter Sturm says sales are up 50 to 100 percent. People worry, he says, that Obama will ban certain semi-automatic weapons. Those are going especially fast. He's been one of the best gun salesmen. Actually, he's been better than... Uh, the Clintons were, and they were damn good. Sturm didn't vote for Obama. He questions the president-elect's patriotism and his stance on Iraq. But for now, Sturm says the threat of a Democratic president is good for business. The picture is less cheery 50 miles down the road in Cheyenne, where the Wyoming legislature began work this week. Lawmakers here mingle in suits, boots, and bolo ties. Many, like Republican Senator Kurt Meyer, are anxious about Obama. We know that we are going to get change. We just don't know what the change is going to be. And I think that brings both a uh, sense of excitement and both a sense of fear because the man is very capable in some areas, but I think that he's awfully green in the gills. Many lawmakers agree Wyoming has a lot at stake. The state's mineral royalties have already taken a hit with the economic downturn. Meyer says Obama's push for alternative energy could be even more painful. But other Wyoming residents are eager for change, especially in Laramie, home of the University of Wyoming. At a coffee shop downtown, many people's eyes light up when they talk about Barack Obama. I feel very optimistic. That's university employee Michael Yake. I think he's got some really good environmental policies. Hopefully that'll hold up. That won't, He won't get a lot of opposition 
from the Republicans in this state who want to drill and drill. Others are worried about Obama's stance on the environment. Across the interstate in West Laramie, four ranchers sit around a table at McDonald's. One of them is Tom Page, a dark-haired man with a silk handkerchief knotted around his neck. My wife had the comment. She said that Obama is going to be like Clinton on steroids. The farming and ranching industry had a lot of trouble with Clinton. Page says his first concern is about endangered species protections. To liberals in Washington, he says endangered species are an abstract, feel-good issue. But he says to Wyoming ranchers, some of those species, like gray wolves, are a real threat to their cattle and to their livelihoods. You know, if we would turn that wolf loose in Central Park or down there around the Lincoln Monument in Washington, D.C., they'd be screaming bloody murder about it real suddenly. Across the table, rancher Scott Sims says he worries the Obama administration will raise the estate tax. He says that could make it tough or impossible for ranchers to pass their land down to their children. We don't need more government. We need less government. We don't need more taxes. We don't need the redistribution of wealth. The other men nod in agreement. University of Wyoming history professor Pete Simpson has seen the tides of Democratic and Republican administrations come and go. He says there's a mix of emotions in Wyoming when it's the Democrats' turn. Some anxiety, some hopefulness, some historical ennui. We're not too great on change in this state. Regardless, change is coming on January 20th. And many here say come Tuesday, they'll stand behind their new president. That's just the Wyoming way. For NPR News, I'm Addie Goss. Some soldiers and their horses from Fort Riley, Kansas, are on their way to Washington, D.C. today. The 1st Infantry Division Commanding General's Mounted Color Guard will ride in Tuesday's inaugural parade. One of a handful of Mounted Army units in the U.S. and the only ones taking part in this year's ceremony. Carla Eccles of member station KMUW in Wichita, Kansas, caught up with the Color Guard in Kansas last week. Sporting black Stetson hats, bright red shirts, and blue jeans, 14 soldiers are leading their horses out of their trailers in a grassy area near the river in downtown Wichita. Army First Sergeant Dean Stockard says the Mounted Color Guard is practicing in Wichita to help the horses get adjusted to urban environments. Similar to what they'll face in Washington, D.C. Basically trying to uh, have the horses and the riders be comfortable with the sounds of the streets, the feel of the roads, uh, the different surfaces that we may encounter in Washington. 18 troopers are traveling to D.C. 14 will ride in the parade, while four will assist as ground crew. Stockard rides the lead mount, a white horse making its second appearance in the inaugural parade. This is Cyclone here. He originally came from this line of Kansas area. He is a 10-year-old quarter horse. He originally came off of uh, some uh, Robert Redford bloodlines. So Robert Redford has his own bloodlines and quarter horses, and this is one of the horses of that bloodline. The animals swish their tails as the soldiers brush down their coats and check their hoofs before lining them up in formation to practice marching before a local crowd. Stockard says they practice exactly what will take place once they approach where Barack Obama and other dignitaries will be seated. At the point in time that we do uh, detachment eyes left, I'll give the hand salute and uh, the soldiers will turn their head to the left. The colors will dip slightly to give honor and pomp and circumstance to the new president of the United States. 
After the horses have paraded through parts of downtown, an eager crowd waits for the soldiers to dismount. I'm Staff Sergeant William Johns. This is my horse, Jacody. We call him Chewy for short. It's easier for the little kids to pronounce when they come up to see him. After being injured in Baghdad and healing up and coming full circle, being able to go to inaugural for a new president, it is, most people can say, it's priceless. On Tuesday morning, the Fort Riley Color Guard will get a police escort to the ceremony and wait its turn to become part of history in this year's presidential inaugural parade. For NPR News, I'm Carla Eccles in Wichita. Any presidential inaugural address is a piece of history, but some have lines that live on longer than others. Few have been cited and quoted more than this one. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. President John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address 48 years ago. We're joined now by the man who was known as JFK's chief wordsmith, counselor, and conscience, Ted Sorensen, joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Nice to be with you, Scott. You know, um, you wrote so many memorable lines with John F. Kennedy, but uh, if I could get you to tell the story once and for all, maybe one line you didn't write was that one. Let's just say that uh, my work over an 11-year period with John F. Kennedy was a collaborative process, and I wouldn't remember now who provided one word or one line, but uh, John F. Kennedy was the author of his inaugural address because he's the man who made the decisions on what policies and values to enunciate. Mm. When um, when you were helping President Kennedy draft that address, you and the president reportedly read from many past inaugural addresses. Can you remember what you learned from some of them? I learned that most of them were uh, pretty poor speeches. <laughs> of course, uh, Lincoln's second inaugural is one of the greatest speeches of all time. Roosevelt's first inaugural was very important at a time of economic collapse, even worse than today. Mm -hmm. Jefferson's first inaugural was important in the early history of our country. Most of the others were forgettable, and I have forgotten them. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think a great inaugural address should accomplish? First of all, it's not a campaign speech. It's a talk to convey America's values to the world and to stamp the identity of that new president for at least the next four years. Mm -hmm. So when you say it's not a campaign speech, they should forget some of, the, some of the rhetoric of the campaign and go on to something new? They certainly shouldn't attack their opponents or even uh, go too heavy into ideology. Yeah. You, uh, of course, famously endorsed Barack Obama during the primaries. Would, um, would, you, would you dare to give him any rhetorical advice as he uh, presumably polishes his inaugural address this weekend? 
I might, but I don't think I would give it over for a weekend edition. <laughs> All right. You can't blame a guy for trying, can you? <laughs> Uh, Another uh, direction entirely. Uh, President Carter nominated you to head the CIA, but the nomination never got to a vote. What do you make of some of the skepticism that has been expressed over President-elect Obama's nomination of uh, Leon Panetta to head the CIA? It all sounded a little familiar. People on the inside saying, but he's not on the inside. That's uh, one of the great attractions I see in Leon Panetta for that job. Mm-hmm. He, he comes in from the outside? and Yes, because clearly the uh, CIA has done some good and great things, but it has also done some bad and terrible things, and a fresh look from the outside could shake it up and clean it up. Can you, having been through it yourself, can you help us understand the process of putting together an inaugural address? Can you... Uh project yourself into that Obama speechwriting team and kind of fathom what they're going through this weekend? It's tough for them this weekend because expectations are so high. The time is so important. Obama is so eloquent that people are expecting a speech that will truly soar. And fortunately, he has a first-rate speechwriting team, and I think they will meet those expectations. Ted Sorensen, a man who wrote many phrases that are chiseled into marble, his latest book is Counselor, Life at the Edge of History. Ted, thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be with you, Scott. Two days after Barack Obama was elected president, Will I Am went on the Oprah show to unveil a new song. I went to sleep last night, tired from the fight. I've been fighting for tomorrow all my life. Yeah, I woke up this morning feeling brand new. Cause the dreams that I've been dreaming is finally getting true. It's a new day. I wrote it the day before the election day. What did Bono say? Bono said, um, Will, you know how to capture the zeitgeist. It's not. When he said that, I don't know what zeitgeist was. And then, I was going to ask you. <laughs> uh, zeitgeist is uh, the ghost of time, the energy that surrounds us. And there's some people that know how to paint that, to capture it, blog about it, write songs about it. We'll hear more from Will I Am in a few minutes. But first, music mogul Russell Simmons. Of course, he's the co-founder of Def Jam Recordings and endorsed Barack Obama during the primaries. He'll be coming to town for the inauguration and the hip-hop inaugural poll. Russell Simmons joins us from our studios in New York. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Tell us about the hip-hop ball. Well, we've been involved in the social and political landscape of this country in a very powerful way for a long time. I mean, the hip-hop community campaigned to get young people registered and to the polls eight years ago, then they went out again in another nonpartisan effort, and they had 50 summits where as many as 10,000 kids showed up in each summit. Eminem hosted Detroit, Snoop Dogg LA, Will Smith, Philadelphia, all the artists worked to get young people registered, educated, and to the polls. And so they deserve celebration now. Mr. Simmons, when, when you get a demo from someone... I haven't signed a record in 10 years. 
Seriously. I have five charities. Oh, my God, I'm on the board of so many more. That's, those are my jobs. Well, there goes that question. And I work with lots of rappers on lots of things all the time. <laughs> well, well, let me put it this way, then. When you hear a piece of music, what says to you this performer, this artist, has what it takes? What do you listen for? I wish I knew. You know, it's just a feeling sometimes. Some artists, tongue twisters, and they have great voices. Some artists, just their content is so powerful. You know, I turn the radio and someone says, what's your favorite record? And I say, sometimes the one on the radio, there's something inside them that we're looking for that makes them special and have a lasting and stable career. And I never know what that is until I hit, it hits me. Mr. Simmons, forgive me for not knowing. You have met President Obama, President-elect Obama? Oh, yeah. And um, when you get his ear, what do you say to him, if we may the ask? President, now I haven't spoken to him since after the election. But I don't, you know, what am I going to say? I, you know, prison reform. He said he liked retroactivity, what Santa Clinton didn't. Animal rights, nine billion suffering farm animals. You know what, I think the arts in the schools, small. Meditation in schools. The worst school in Detroit is now the best as a result of sitting still, quiet time. Little things he can promote, he can make a difference. And, and may I ask, Mr. Simmons, when you come to the inauguration, do you have to stand in line? Well, I, I don't, I haven't asked. You know, I'm not a celebration dude. Like, when he won, I went home. I was at a party. Puffy had a big party. I was excited, I guess, but I went to sleep. You know what I mean? It was good. It's like the work is more important for me. I'm not going to get drunk and, you know, go to this. And I probably won't have to get on too many lines. That's probably true. I probably won't. Russell Simmons speaking to us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. Well, thank you so much. This past year, William James Adams, better known as Will I Am, frontman for the Black Eyed Peas, put a campaign speech to music and created a hit. Yes, we can to opportunity and prosperity. Yes, we can heal this nation. Heal this nation. Yes, we can repair this world. The song is called Yes, We Can, after Barack Obama's speech that inspired it. The video was part celebrity endorsement and part campaign anthem. Tomorrow, Will I Am joins countless other musicians in Washington, D.C. for an HBO-sponsored inauguration concert at the Lincoln Memorial. Will I Am, William James Adams, joins us from NPR West. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Quite a lineup at this concert. Bruce Springsteen, Bono, John Legend, Mary J. Blige, Stevie Wonder, Sheryl Crow. <laughs> As I understand it, it's not going to be what we might call a greatest hits concert, but artists are going to be performing songs related to the theme, We Are One. Mm-hmm. I'll be performing a song called One Love, written and performed originally by Bob Marley, one of the greats. What do you see this concert as, as saying? The concert to me, you know, what it symbolizes is America's growth. And if you think about all the protests and all the marches and all the cries for equality, what it means to me is uh, America's graduation. You know, I guess I don't know entirely what moved you to hear that speech. We, we, and it was a speech Senator Obama gave after losing the New Hampshire primary, not the one he gave after winning the Iowa caucuses. What made you decide to turn it into a song, and how did you do it? Well, before that, in January 2007, I talked to Terry McAuliffe on the phone. He called me up and said, Hey, Will, buddy, we're going to go at it again, and we want you to support Hillary Clinton. I was like, you know, uh, Terry, I don't, I don't know if what the Black Eyed Peas, what we want to do collectively. 
I don't know what Fergie, what she, who she wants to support, and app and taboo. So, last time we got involved, we knew Carrie was the the nominee. He was like, well, even if the Black Eyed Peas don't know, I want you to to get involved. So then he calls in January again. I said, you know, I'm really on the fence. I said, can we wait till after Super Tuesday? He said, sure. After Super Tuesday, we should know who you should support. We need to get a Democrat in the office, and by this time. Hillary's lead would be even bigger. I said, okay. So I'm sitting there, maybe a week after I talked to Terry McAuliffe, and I'm watching TV. My eyes are glued to, to the TV screen when Obama gives his speech in New Hampshire. When we've been told we're not ready, or that we shouldn't try, or that we can't, generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. It was a creed written on founding yes, documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. Yes, it rung. Can. It rung to me like it was truth. That is true. Those words, I was like, wow. Now, then I thought when I was in school, all the speeches that I had to recite, you know, Martin Luther King's speech and Lincoln's speech and Kennedy's speech, and I pity the the youth today, you know, there's there's really no politicians that any child or adult in college can be inspired by. And I wanted to try to get that speech taught in schools. That was a goal that I thought was uh, achievable. Mm-hmm. To say like, yeah, I'm gonna get this guy, I'm gonna do my best to try to get this guy elected. You're, you're really shooting for the stars. But if you could have an immediate goal, boom, that I could achieve. Like, I know how to get a song on the radio. I know how to make a jingle for a campaign or a product. Well, maybe I can make it into a song and put a melody to the words. It was a creed written on the founding documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists as they blazed the trail toward freedom. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was sung by immigrants as they struck out the distant shores of pioneers pushed westward against unforgiving wilderness. When I did it, it gave me the chills. And from that speech, I knew who I wanted to um, support. I was inspired by Obama. And when inspiration calls, you don't send it to voicemail. You answer it, you pick it up, you have a conversation with it. What issues do you think it's very important for him to follow through on? And, and, and please feel free to be as specific as you, as you want to be. I live in California, and uh, they've cut $200 million around there in education. That's scary to me. We need to fix education. Like that is, should be just as important, even more important than Homeland Security. Creating new jobs is important. I have a Tesla. It goes zero to 60 in 3.7 seconds. Mm -hmm. It's just as fast, even faster than my Bentley. It's an American-made car. There's no oil, no gas, or water. It's not like the technology isn't there. It's there. And when I get solar panels on my house, then I'm totally carbon-free. I I ask you this as someone who... uh is in show business. In, in, in show business, you learn you have to deal with uh, high expectations. It's difficult when you get introduced to, now the greatest act of all time, 
so imagine here you are, Senator Obama's becoming president with people, people really having a lot invested in, uh, in his success. How do you meet those expectations? You meet the expectations by keeping the people involved and informed. You muster a way to continue to inspire people without traditional media. People have to be invested in the success of Obama. Obama isn't just one person. The concept of Obama is we, and that's how you meet the expectations for the we to continue to be involved. Mr. Adams, I can't thank you enough for all your time. Oh, thank you so much. Do we, do we call you Mr. I Am? Oh, uh, no, nah, that's cool. You can call me Will. <laughs> okay, Will. Speaking with us from NPR West, Will I Am. Uh, by the way, it's going to be cold out on the mall. Yeah, I have, um, I have my wool. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Okay, doke. We are one people. We are one nation. And together, we will begin the next great chapter in the American story. You can hear the song and watch the video for Yes We Can at nprmusic.org. Yes, we can. 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 Whether you're looking forward to change or not, change is a coming, and that might be hard not only for some conservatives who will see the U.S. government run by Democrats, but liberals who've enjoyed years of jokes about George Bush's syntax or Dick Cheney's aim. What do you hope for when your prayers have been answered? Well, to help with the transition, we've brokered an important discussion to take place between left and right. Joining us from the left is radio host Stephanie Miller, host of The Stephanie Miller Show. She's on the line from her studios in Burbank, California. Stephanie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And from the right, right here across the table in our studios is Jonah Goldberg, contributing editor for the National Review. Jonah, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much. Always great to be here. You've been through this kind of transition before, haven't Indeed, you? yes. Uh, eight, eight years ago when President Bush entered the White House. What's your advice to Stephanie Miller as, as she's now on the winning side? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I mean, there's some easy ones. Uh, for example, if, if your vice president shoots someone in the face... Have a sense of humor about it, because these things happen. We now know this. Um, another one, another one. I mean, another obvious one is when the French declare we're all Americans now. Just keep in mind that they're probably lying. <laughs> Stephanie, what what happens if uh, if uh, President-elect Obama can't turn water into wine? Uh, please, Joni, you weren't listening to Oprah. He is the one. He is. He will turn water into wine. He will uh, part the waters of the Potomac. Uh, Jonah, here's the other thing. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say I'm going to predict that in eight years, Joe Biden will not shoot anyone in the face. I'm just going to. I'm going to. I'm going to. But go a lot on of the people with... he talks to would might prefer it. Oh, what? That, no was sniping. Sniping. that was sniping. That was sniping. Scott? Fair enough. Yeah, you're sniping. All right. okay, I'll be enough. at the unofficial scorekeeper. And <laughs> uh, Stephanie, I, I, I think probably not a day goes by I don't get a George Bush joke uh, emailed to me. But they're already sounding a little dated, aren't they? I mean, what, what are you going to do for laughs? 
It's well, that you know, that is true. I've said this over and over. Obama, great for the country, just the death of comedy as we know it. I, I we've got nothing so far with this guy. Uh, but George Bush, I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, not have a joke as president. So I'm, I'm happy to see him go. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a real dilemma is that, uh, uh, particularly for shows like The Daily Show and Colbert, when these are very talented, very funny guys, but they've also sort of taken it upon themselves to be the, um, the the court jesters of politics. And that's going to be a much more difficult act mm-hmm. to do against Barack Obama, which I think Stephanie's absolutely right about. But it's also just going to be a much more difficult act to do against Republicans. Republicans are completely out of power. And if they're going to be equal opportunity, they're going to have to, for want of a better catchphrase, speak truth to power to the people who are in power. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how well liberals react to that. To being well, treated. Yeah. Uh, we want to note that, according to my information, Stephanie Miller, you're, you're coming to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. Jonah Goldberg, who lives here, is leaving town. I, I'm, I'm in all likelihood Good. getting out and of Dodge. And stay out. Yeah, yeah, they will. So, so do you have any advice to give Stephanie? I mean, as prosaic as tourist attractions, restaurant recommendations, anything like that? Well, you know, it's funny. I was reading up on some of the sort of you know, what to do guides for the inauguration. And several press reports said that people who are going to the inauguration should bring their own toilet paper because the crowds are going to be so big. And I don't know, just me, but I generally have a philosophy of anything that's BYOTP, I don't go to. Um, or to clean up after George Bush's mess. There you go. To clean up the big steaming pile that he left for us. Are you allowed to say steaming pile on NPR? Probably not. Oh, well. No, you can say steaming pile. Only if it, only yeah. it's part of some National Geographic audio experience about some fungus in the jungle that is endangered by George Bush's policies on global warming. That, 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 that's really good. What do you make of the fact that, that President Obama had dinner at George Will's house this past week with a bunch of yeah. conservatives? And that by the way, Jonah, what do we make down. of the fact that you weren't you weren't on the, on the guest list? <laughs> yeah, what do we make of the fact that Jonah Goldberg was not invited? I, I steadfastly refuse to be co-opted by refusing to actually be invited to it. Now, uh, uh, my <laughs> boss, uh, Rich Lowry, was invited. Uh, I think it was a brilliant thing for Obama to do, um, whether it was in the spirit of bipartisanship or in the spirit of co-optation. To Obama's credit is not something that George Bush would have done. But at the same time, you know, it's it's worth remembering that it's a lot more fun being out of power. It just is, because all you have to do is shoot spitballs at the guys in power. And it's going to be a lot more difficult for liberals to figure out how to both govern and stick to their principles, just as it was hard for the conservatives to do it over the last eight years. Well, you st- sounded almost sincere saying that. I am almost sincere. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie Miller uh, in her studios in Burbank, California. Thanks so much. And uh, Jonah Goldberg, who in addition to working for the National Review writes a column for the L.A. Times. Thanks both very much. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Coming up, Elizabeth Alexander talks about writing poetry on demand, in this case, for a presidential inaugural. But first, we mark a milestone. Once upon a midnight dreary, 
while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. Monday, January 19, marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of the American master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. The city of Baltimore, where Poe lived on and off, is a place full of his haunts, including his house on Amity Street and the tavern where he drank before his death in 1849. Baltimore is holding a year-long Poe commemoration, and tonight, actor and Baltimorean John Aston will present an hour of Poe's works at Westminster Hall. The actor, who's perhaps always best known as Gomez in the Adams Family, joins us now from the studios of WYPR in Baltimore. Mr. Aston, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. And tell us how you first maybe felt Edgar Allan Poe moving through your life as a Baltimorean. Uh, Sometime before I was 12, my mother gave me the purloined letter to read. When I put the book down, I I was so stunned by the ending of the purloined letter Mm -hmm. that to this day I remember all these details of the room when I I sat there pondering. And then, uh, oh, I guess the pit and the pendulum was next and the cask of Amontillado and uh, when I was older, uh, I became uh, attracted to the poetry. And uh, well, to, to hear to hear you read it, I mean, there is something extraordinary about those rhythms and the internal rhymes and his choice oh. of language that must be so yep. both gratifying and challenging for an actor. Yeah, it's both. Uh, I don't think there's anything like it in the rest of literature. But because you've become something of a post scholar. Uh, maybe you explain this to us. He, he's, Edgar Allan Poe was born in Boston and lived a number of places, including Richmond, Philadelphia, yep. and New York. Of course, he uh, he died in uh, in Baltimore. Why do we associate him so much with Baltimore? Why does that wind up becoming the signature city in his life? Well, two things. First, it's where he met, or at least established a relationship with the young woman who would eventually become his wife, his cousin, Virginia, his first cousin, Virginia. And uh, it was a joyful time for him. Mm. So I I think that's one important aspect of his Baltimore time. Uh, The other, of course, is uh, that he died here, and he died mysteriously. We don't really know what happened. And uh, I think that mystery uh, continues. Is there still someone who steals into the graveyard and leaves, is it a rose on his grave every every year? Every year, yes. And a glass of brandy. <laughs> That's right. The Poe Toaster, he's called, or she. Yeah, yeah. Whoever it is. None of us know. 200 years later, do you, uh, do you see, if I might put it this way, the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe when you move around Baltimore? <laughs> I see the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe all the time. He's in my home. <laughs> He's at my shoulder. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, in, in preparing a one-person show, um, when I conjure up all these characters from his life, he shows up. He... He doesn't want to be left out. Mr. Aston, so nice talking to you. And, uh, and it's to a mi- pleasure. And to Mr. Poe. Okay. <laughs> John Aston joining us from uh, studios of WYPR in Baltimore. He's participating in 
Nevermore 2009, a year-long commemoration of the bicentennial of Edgar Allan Poe. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted nevermore. Ask any schoolchild who their idea of a great president is, any adult for that matter, chances are they'll say Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln is the subject of a whole new flood of biographies, studies, and appreciations as we approach the 200th anniversary of his birth. There are also many books for children. One of them in particular stood out to our ambassador to the world of children's literature, a man of considerable stature himself, also from Illinois, Daniel Pinkwater. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Scott, Lincoln Schminken, if we'd have had Governor Blagojevich back in those days, yes. the whole secession thing could have been settled without a shot being fired. <laughs> yeah. How much do you want for it, right? Uh, we're talking about a lovely book called Stand Tall, Abe Lincoln. Yes, we are. Judith yes, St. George, illustrated by Matt Faulkner. Very well illustrated indeed. And the book is part of a series called Turning Points all to do with the lives of future presidents and supposed to depict some singular event to which we can connect their eventual ascendancy. It's an idea. I've seen it all my life in school books and Boy Scouts-approved biographies, Washington and the Cherry Tree and all that. Mm -hmm. It's usually a process of myth-making and deification. You look out for the illustration of the hand of God on the shoulder of George Washington, you know. We don't know whether the boy Lincoln necessarily witnessed slaves in chains, and it's for sure we don't know what he might have thought at a moment like that. So I bring you a book of an ordinary type, but. And the but is? Look at the pictures, first of all, Scott. Mm -hmm. Really good They're, art. Yes, wonderfully, wonderfully done pictures. And, and it has an effect on me of familiarity. You know, okay, granted that life uh, on the, uh, you know, southern, uh, southern Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky frontier was a little different in the 19th century, but a lot of it feels pretty similar. It's, it's, it's family life, and somehow the, the drawings make me feel like, oh, yeah, this is like going to school when you're little. Let, let, let's... Uh... If I may put it this way, let me set up uh, the story about Lincoln the boy here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. With, uh, when Abe is young, he sees, at least according to some stories over the years, he sees slaves. And, we can assume. And and certainly, and is and is affected at seeing men in chains. We can assume. He has, he has a younger brother who dies soon after birth. Uh, family moves around. His mother, a very strong influence who encourages learning at a time when the onus is often on young children just to work the land. She teaches him to read. But then uh, his beloved mother dies. His father goes back east to find another wife. And uh, Abe and his sister Sarah are left alone. Chapter 5, Abe Up in the Air. One December day, Abe and Sarah heard a commotion of horses and voices outside. Their father was home. He'd come back with a farm wagon piled high with furniture and a wife. Three children were perched on the wagon with her. Sally Lincoln was tall and big-boned with a wide smile. She beamed and waved to Abe and Sarah. She didn't seem to notice that Abe's long limbs stuck out of his greasy butternut jeans and filthy toe shirt, or that Sarah's dress was in tatters. She opened her heart and arms to the two sad-looking children. Sarah flew into them. Not Abe. 
He always took his time making up his mind about anything new, and what was newer than a new stepmother. Back in Kentucky, Thomas had known Sally for years. She was widowed, too. Now Sally introduced her children to Abe and Sarah. There was Elizabeth, she was 12, Matilda was 8, and John D. 5. Abe was tall for 10. He towered over little John D. They were one family now. First things first, Sally filled the horse trough with water. Abe and Sarah knew what that meant, a bath. But baths were for summertime, not December. There was no arguing with Sally. Abe and Sarah shivered through a good hard scrub. Cleaning the dirty cabin came next. Abe carried water back and forth from the creek, but he didn't join in the chatter. He needed time to get used to Sally. Not only was she big and broad-shouldered, but she also had a loud, booming voice. Abe's mother had been tall and slender, and her voice had been soft. How could a stepmother with three ready-made children have any love left over for them? Right off, Sally announced she couldn't read or write. So Abe was struck dumb when she unpacked a pile of books. And what books? Aesop's Fables, Pilgrim's Progress, Arabian Nights, Life of George Washington, Robinson Crusoe. Sally must have seen Abe's eyes light up. She told him he was welcome to read any book he wanted. Let me break in here. Yeah. Um, we can identify with this because this, this would be just as true in a family today as then. What makes this book resonate for me is the way the author and the illustrator have, have handled the assignment. Instead of putting an artificial spotlight on questionable or made-up moments in Lincoln's childhood, they give us a story. Yeah. They create a picture of people living in a community, and we get to see young Abe, a nice, bright, capable, promising kid, like a lot of kids. He's not quite extraordinary. Yeah. He doesn't have any prophetic moments, but we like him. Yeah. And without the book telling us, we get the feeling that the people around him liked him. Yeah. He survived reverses, he got a bit of help here and there, found ways to develop his natural aptitudes, and he belonged to a community. It seems real to me. Yeah. And, of course, the um, the stepmother, the wicked stepmother, is often how it's portrayed in, uh, in storybooks. But here in life you have a woman who was touched by this real little child and really was a turning point in his life because it was, it was Sally as the book goes on to explain, and we know from history, who interceded with uh, with Abraham Lincoln's father uh, so that he wouldn't have to do the chores until he'd done his schoolwork. She... Yeah, all done in a very compact way. It's, it's, a, it's a good blend of text and art. I'm particularly enamored of the illustrations. I think that they're as good as can be for this kind of thing. Uh, and it's, it's a handsome book. Uh, on a popular topic. A good week to remind ourselves that uh, tall, skinny kids from Illinois can amount to something. And that people from Illinois in general tend to be heroes. <laughs> Present company. Certainly included. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go that far, but I'll, I'll, I'll stand with you. The book is uh, Stand Tall, Abe Lincoln, written by Judith St. George, illustrated by Matt Faulkner. Daniel Pinkwater joined us from his home in the Hudson Valley. He's the author of many fine books for children and for adults. His forthcoming novel is The Igacy, and you can read the book before publication at pinkwater.com. Thank you so much, Daniel. Scott's always fun to talk to you. Poet Elizabeth Alexander was asked to write an original poem for the inauguration, the African-American studies professor from Yale and friend of President-elect Obama joins us now from New York. Ms. Alexander, thanks so much for being with us. I'm pleased to be with you. So is it done? 
The poem is done. Yes, that does not mean that there may not be a, a last-minute fiddle or tweak, but it is it is fundamentally done. So uh, can we, like, hear it? No, you can't. You're going to have to <laughs> wait until the 20th, <laughs> and then you get the whole thing. I was hoping to catch you unawares. Maybe, <laughs> I'm maybe guarding once. it like a mother tiger. Uh, I remember reading once, a number of years ago, that Robert Frost, who's, who's one of this very illustrious uh, short category of poets who have read uh, at previous inaugurations, he'd written his poem, or said he'd written his poem, uh, on a pad of paper that he was balancing on his foot and wrote his poem. May I ask, uh, paper, pen, computer, how do you write? I begin often with scraps of paper because poems for me begin when I'm in the midst of doing the things that I do on regular days, uh, teaching, picking up my children, making dinner. Um, I always have pen and paper nearby because in the meditative snatches of time uh, in the midst of the day, I find that, that many, many, many phrases often come to me. And then once I have some clear time to myself, that's when I gather the scraps and see what's there and see what has uh, a life that goes beyond the fragment. Mm. Uh, after I've drafted it on legal pad, that's when it goes into the computer. And, and may I ask, this, uh, this poem you're going to read at the inauguration, did you have to run it by anybody? No. Isn't that extraordinary? I did not, and I think that that says something about believing that what artists bring that folks need and can use. Have you chosen to run it by anybody whose opinion you respect and want? My husband is the person who always hears my poems, and he gives me the big thumbs up or the big thumbs down, <laughs> and so we've gone through our usual ritual. In your mind now, what does this mean for you to, to share this moment and to help embody this moment in America? It is profoundly humbling what this day means to so many people and the power of that emotion is something that I've really tried to respect and consider. This is a day that reminds us of all of the work that there is ahead, but it's also a day of a very, very sober and powerful joy. Uh, and so that has kept me sober myself. I don't want to be responsible for instilling you with even more anxiety, <laughs> if that's what you're feeling. But that's, I'll keep it together. <laughs> the, the audience will be, I assume, in the billions. Mm -hmm. And your words will be quoted for decades, centuries. Well, that's right. And so when faced with the literally unimaginable, I mean, really, who can imagine that? None of us. Nobody can imagine that. It just took me back to what I already know about how to approach a poem. You're looking at a blank page. You are humble before the muse. You hope that she will help you. You make a million false starts. I can't tell you uh, how many crossings out and excisions and overwriting and then cutting back. I mean, the, you know, the drafting process just went on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Because what I did know, and this as regards your question, is that I had to feel that I had absolutely done my very best and then some. So I did give it my very best and then some. And without imparting anything to us or in any way 
uh, destroying the magic of discovery. Is your poem about the president, about the country? Well, it's hard to say what the about of is in this poem. Is the word Obama in it? No. (laughs) I can tell you that. It's not about the president in that way. But I do think that it's about this very, very, very extraordinary moment that I really see as a collective moment Mm -hmm. and about trying to strike a tone that keeps us aware that a lot of work and sacrifice brought us here and that that's what we need to keep doing to move forward. And may I ask, in conclusion, does it rhyme? There are some rhymes in it. Uh, I'm not trying to to evade your question, but uh, there are some rhymes in it. Wait and see. Okay. Be surprised. All right, all right, I will. Okay. Elizabeth Alexander who will read her poem at the inauguration of President Obama on Tuesday. Ms. Alexander, so nice talking to you. You too. Thank you very much for your questions. And if you're braving the cold in crowds of Washington, D.C., or you're simply watching Barack Obama's inauguration at home, we'd like you to share your experience. You can head to npr.org slash inauguration report and actually be a part of our coverage. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. This has been At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. Thanks so much for joining us. Why not subscribe? I'm Scott Simon.